Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So I just wanted to say hello to everybody, let you know it's been a lot happening in my world. Had to take some time off, and now I'm trying to come back and do some more shows. So thank you for being patient with me. I appreciate it. And sometimes, you know, this gets a little taxing, can be a little hectic, but I'm doing the best that I can, and we're going to try to get it back on track. And, um, you know, we may even end up doing some pre-recorded shows. So, you know, there are a bunch of changes that I need to make. But, um, eh, like I said, it's a lot going on in my world. So, yeah, um, about a month ago, yeah, it was about a month ago, I had um, made a status update, and I was talking about how difficult it can be navigating around emotions and, you know, all of that type of stuff um, as a non-believer, especially when you're dealing with grief, death, disappointment, you know, just a number of things. And so, um, I don't know, I've been trying to kind of cope with some things that have happened, and it's been hard. It's been really hard coming to terms with it. Um, Someone very close to me was diagnosed um, with an illness. And, you know, initially they got sick. And, you know, us being us, we went running, right? You know, what do you need? How do we figure it out? You know, looking at the paperwork, your blood work doesn't look right. Why is this happening you know, sending notes to the doctor, asking questions, calling, whatever. And so then a little bit after that, a proper, or the prognosis was given to us, and it was like being slapped with a cast iron skillet. And so, you know, what was interesting about that is that, you know, we went running again because we're going to walk them through this entire situation, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time. But, you know, we know we have every confidence that they're going to come out of this smelling like a rose. So everything's going to be fine. We just have to make sure that along this process that instructions are followed and and, and that we do what's needed to do to help this person make it through this situation. So, you know, we had that. It's still ongoing, but it's, you know, a a lot easier to deal with now, especially after talking with the doctors to figure out what was going on there. But um, in addition to that, I was sick too. And with what was happening with me, it started in October, And it was intermittent, so, you know, you don't really think too much about it. 
and I just blamed it on some new medication. But come to find out, that wasn't it. So I ended up having surgery a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm just finishing recovering from that. And, you know, what was so interesting about this entire situation was when we went running to help and to encourage and support, you know, this person that I love, you know, we went to, you know, just be there for them and figure out, you know, how we were going to, you know, rotate things to make sure that, you know, they had everything that they needed, especially support and encouragement. So during the, you know, car ride there, you know, I got a call, but didn't pick up. You know, we were jamming to Michael, right, and then got there, went to dinner, and decided to check my Facebook page, and then I saw the inbox, and I was like, fuck, this can't be good news. And um, they were like, call me, and I called them. And they were like, Auntie Kim. And I'm like, yeah, baby. Mommy died at 1 o'clock. And um, all I could say was no. And we went back and forth three times with a no. And um, that was probably one of the hardest things that I had to do. You know, and this was, you know, one of my big sisters. You know, best of friends, but big sister and sometimes mommy when needed, right? You know, when I got my diagnosis of lupus, I was at their house. And um, they were like, oh, you'll be all right. And this is somebody that was extremely important to me. And so um, it was hard. And so I made it, you know, went to the visitation and sat in the back in the corner just watching. You know, a couple of her kids saw me and I hugged them. The other ones didn't see me and I kind of snuck out, you know, when they, when they gave benediction, right? And so the next day was the funeral. So I got there a little bit after it started and found my seat from the night before in the back in the corner. And I was absolutely floored. And that's one of the things that happens when, I mean, I didn't expect it to happen. You know, you never think that the people that you're close to people that you love are going to die. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's one of the facts of life, right? But sometimes it's just really, really hard to process it and to express those particular emotions and thoughts, especially when there's been an evolution, if you will, in your thought process and how you view life and how you view death and all of that in between, right? So, you know, it was hard. 
And, you know, I would not allow myself to cry. You know, tears flowed, but I didn't cry. I know you're like, if you didn't cry, where did tears come from? There's tearing and then there's crying. And when I say cry, I'm talking about one of those cries that come deep from within, right? And so they were doing the last viewing and ushering people out into the hall. And I waited until it got to the last three rows, and I finally went up there. And some of the other kids and her husband saw me in the hall earlier. But, um, you know, the oldest daughter, that was the first time she had seen me. And um, I went and I looked, and I was like, damn. Because the whole time I was just hoping that this was just some fucking cruel joke. You know? But... You know, it was then that I allowed myself to cry, and I said to her oldest daughter, I said, what are we going to do? And it probably sounds like, you know, an interesting question, or, you know, some people are like, what do you mean, what are we going to do? This person was the go-to person for everything. And I remember when we first met, and, (laughs) you know, from day one, I was called little sister and just loved on and, you know, and it was interesting because we met in Atlanta when I lived there and it was right when we had moved there. I think it was a couple of months in and, you know, I don't know. It's it's just, it's wild. So, you know, I was talking to her baby boy. Now, mind you, all her kids are grown. You know, even the baby girl is good and grown now, right? And so it was just, it was a difficult situation, you know, but that was the very ninth, the ninth time that she's dealt with cancer, number nine. You know, you heard that correctly. And so that's a lot for a person's body to take. So anyway, before I uh, start tearing up again, you know, I'm going to miss my big sister. But the beautiful thing about it is that I see her in her children, and I have relationships with them and, um, you know, her husband, you know, great guy, you know, keep in touch with him. And, um, but yeah. Yeah, it was a time, you know, had a real hard time kind of coming to terms with that because for for a few minutes, I mean, even really all the way up until I went and viewed her body finally, I was hoping that it was just people fucking with me. <laughs> you know, I knew better, but sometimes just because you know better doesn't mean that you can't be in denial about certain situations and things. So, yeah, you know, that right there, that really, that drop kicked my ass, you know, and sitting in back of the room and everything went as she wished. You know, her wishes were fulfilled and it was packed both days. And I think what broke my heart the most was her little brother 
and his reaction. Because um, when I say she was the go-to person, she was the go-to person. You know, every little thing. (laughs) And um, she's missed. She's missed by a hell of a lot of people. You know, it's nice seeing some of the other people, you know, that's part of the family. Because some of them I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And, you know, we had each other to rely on. But it's still hard for me to except that she's gone. So that is where that is. So I didn't want to spend a lot of time on that. But just kind of let you guys know where I've been, what I've been up to, what's been going on around these parts. And um, what was interesting about this whole situation is... You know, my feelings and emotions about all of it, not just the death of my big sister, but um, just everything that has taken place really since October. And I don't know, I I feel like I snapped out of it yesterday because there were things that I had been putting off that, you know, I started putting things in place and getting things situated. So I'm in a much better frame of mind. And also a couple of the things that I need to do, you know, she would she would be asking me, why are you, you know, procrastinating? And so with the other person. So, you know, we're moving forward on those things. And that is that. So that is what has been happening in my world. You know, had to kind of recover from, you know, just shocking, devastating news and then being sick on top of it. And that's one of the reasons why we had the surgery a couple of weeks ago so that I can go and help out, you know, with um, the other person and help them get through what um, they need to get through. But it's not going to happen when I have pain that drops me to the floor. So that's how bad it had gotten. So it needed to be dealt with. So there you go, everybody. So that's what's been happening with Kimberly from Black Free Thinkers. But, you know, life goes on. And I'm pretty sure you all have been keeping up with the news. And I've just been sitting here watching this fiasco of presidency trying to figure out what is on their minds, not only, you know, President Bannon, but also with Paul Ryan and, you know, Comey, and now we can add Nunez to that, and it's like, really? You know, just trying to get a better idea as to what's happening up there, and, you know, like I said, bread and circuses. Bread and circuses trying to figure out what's happening to these people, you know, and better yet, what is going to happen to the rest of us as a result of this, you know, this this flagrant incompetency, right? And it's amazing. Sometimes I wonder if they know how to sign their own names at the bottom of the piece of paper because – you know, 
that what did what did they name it? American Health Care Act went down in flames. And what was so interesting about it is, you know, even during this time, I was active on social media somewhat. Um, even when you see me post things on Facebook, that doesn't mean that I'm on Facebook. Most of the time, I'm sharing it directly from the source, right? And so sometimes I'll come on and take a look, especially if someone comments or tags me. And, um, you know, sitting back and watching that, with my mouth agape, saying, what in the hell is really going on around here? So, you know, with that health care bill or act that they were trying to pass, over 24 million people would have lost their health care, particularly Medicaid, over the next five years. And what's so interesting is the majority of the people who would have been affected by this were Trump supporters. So they were working-class white people and poor white people. And, yes, I did read that article by Sean King in which he said <laughs> to stop calling Trump's followers or, you know, minions there working-class um people. But, you know, I think it's okay, but if you add whites, working class whites, because you have working class blacks, working class Latinos, so I mean, I understand that. So that's why I usually kind of bundle it together, working class and poor whites. And so in a long in the long run, they would have lost quite a bit of their health care, which is quite interesting because I'm pretty sure you all have been keeping up with these town halls and these protests and these rallies. And what's interesting is, you know, people are there and they're like, leave my health care alone. And, you know, what's so interesting is for some of these people, they did not realize that their Affordable Care Act or ACA benefits were the same thing as the Obamacare. And, you know, it's tragic but this happens quite a bit because what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing and, and experiencing, you know, because there have been some incidents, right? White people, some of y'all have lost your damn minds. And what I will tell you, and this is the honest to goodness truth, we are not our parents. Now, a few of you all have been, you know, drugged through the streets trying to pull that bullshit, calling people niggers and trying to fight black people. And then when you get knocked the fuck back on your ass, now you want to call the police when you instigated the shit. But, hmm. So anyway, you know, and also not only is your ACA the same thing as Obamacare, your SNAP is the same thing as LINK, is the same thing as food stamps. And so you have some white folks out here, especially working class and poor whites, who are othering everybody else. And when I say othering, meaning they want their benefits for them and other white people or white identified folks or, you know, (laughs) Eurocentric folks, right? But they don't want anyone else to have it. So, you know, no SNAP or food stamps or health care for the Mexicans or the blacks or the other Latinos or Hispanics 
or the you know the Indians, and not only I mean I'm not well, we Indigenous Americans or Native Americans, but I was talking about the Indians from India, right? East Indians, and it's just interesting um, when you hear them, and the, the tr- you know the buzzwords, and it's it's just. It's like, wow, really? And so you have a lot of that happening. But what they have not realized is that President Bannon and his particular ilk, if you will, they don't like poor people, period. Whether you're poor white, poor black, you know, poor Latinx, whatever, they don't like you because you're poor. And they, they're, one of their goals, one of their missions is to roll back and get rid of our social safety net. And so I've done a few shows talking about how affirmative, you know, it's, it's somewhere. It was a few years ago, and I did a show on affirmative action. And once you get into the show, you'll understand that I was talking about affirmative action for white people. Right, and there's a book by Ira Katz Nelson called, you know, when affirmative action was white, and he also um, has another book, and it's called Fear Itself, and with both of those books, they delve into FDR and the New Deal, and how all of that came about, and how basically, you know, these programs were there for working class and poor white people. And you hear, you know, you've been hearing a lot about how with this American Health Care Act, how they wanted to, you know, create this new health care system, but push the responsibility down to the states. So basically kind of, you know, shoving it off the federal role or dole and giving it to the states. Now, that was some of the issue with, you know, the New Deal even then because they started pushing those programs and the money to the states, and then the states were given the right to administer those funds and and admit people into these programs. And there was a lot of discrimination. You know, quite a few black and brown and red people were not allowed to participate, excuse me, in some of these programs. And eventually, you know, some were let in, and, you know, it's, it's a little bit better now. But what, you know, I need for you guys to understand is I'll give you one or a couple of examples now of what's happening. <laughs> now that we got Uncle Ben over HUD, you know, they're trying to cut millions of dollars, you know, from HUD. You know, just an incredible amount of money. But what happens, you know, is the the federal government sends each state a check, well, not a check, but funds every year, same amount, right? And then it's up to the states to disseminate those funds and and to – you know, allow people to participate in some of these programs. And with some of these states, you know, not some of them, all of them, they've been pushing people off of Section 8. They've been pushing people out of public housing. You know, there are a number of voucher programs that are out there. And what happens is when they push you off those programs, the money stays the same. 
But that surplus, they get to use that for their pet programs. So it's to their benefit to push as many people out of the program as possible. And what's interesting is the same thing was going to end up happening with this American Health Care Act. Now, if you all want to see something really interesting, go out and look at the um, comments made by Alcee Hastings of Florida. And again, Alcee Hastings, A-L-C-E-E, H-A-S-T-I-N-G-S. And basically, he said that, um, you know, that Congress and the president were being nasty to poor people. So, you know, he said, why should he be nice to them? And so, you know, and it's the honest to goodness truth. You know, and um, it turned into a really nasty interaction between him and, you know, um, Oregon Republican Greg Walden. So they were going back and forth, but it was poor Americans across the board that were going to get screwed. You know, not only, you know, working class people or poor people, seniors, students, just a number of things. And, again, they're trying to get rid of these social safety nets. And I just think it's important that you guys understand, you know, what's happening here. So, anyway, I'm going to move on, you know, from that. But I had posted an article on my wall, and it was talking about um, Portugal and how – Afro-Portuguese citizens were being denied their birthright. And that's not the first place that has done that. I mean, I'm pretty sure you all have been seeing what was happening in the Dominican Republic with the Haitians and how, you know, Haitians that had lived there for several generations were being, you know, cast out. And this is not the first time something like that has happened. I know I've talked about Germany and how Afro-Germans, especially the ones, um, I can't remember the area right now, but Afro-Germans that were being denied their birthright as well, especially after World War II. And there were a lot of biracial children in that region. I don't understand why I can't remember the name of it because I know that's history. And, you know, they were just talking about these things. But anyway, they were denied their birthright citizenship. Happened in Germany. It also happened in France. And I need to pick up that book by um, Dr. Fleming because she just wrote a book talking about um, colonialism and white supremacy in France and how, you know, Afro-French people had to deal with, you know, a lot of bullshit over there. And what was interesting was when I was in Paris, I was talking to some of the people that lived there, especially my Uber drivers, which pretty much they were all Algerian. And they're in the same situation that many people of color in this country are in. You know, they're disproportionately jailed. I mean, just a number of issues. And so when we were talking, you know, we were comparing stories and showing how, you know, the story is pretty much the same. So anyway, I want you guys to go and look that up. And there are many other places. I mean, it happened in Japan as well. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I know, you know, I've talked about the 13th Amendment 
and some things that just need to be outright changed, right? And, of course, you get people calling in like, no, leave it alone. Why do you want to change it? Why do you not want to change it? And so then generally their response will be the 14th Amendment. And, you know, what was written in the 14th Amendment and how that, you know, basically um, balances out the 13th Amendment or overshadows it, right? However, (laughs) with the 14th Amendment, changes that can be made in the law basically can take birthright citizenship from people in America. And it's important, it's very important for you guys to go and read and to understand. I posted an article on my law, and it's titled, These Countries Show Why Losing Birthright Citizenship Could Be a Disaster. And so I want you guys to pay attention because, you know, you should have been paying attention and hearing this particular administration, you know, referring to the 14th Amendment. So when you hear them referring to these different amendments or these acts or what have you, it is incumbent upon you to go out and to do that research and to see how that, you know, what bearing that can have on you and other people around you. Because at this point in time in history, not only do we have to safeguard ourselves, but we have to safeguard you know, others around us as well. Because, you know, especially what's happening now with ICE and how they're deporting people and kicking them out of the country, one of the stories that, you know, that isn't getting the recognition that it should is a lot of black African immigrants are being kicked out of this country. You know, and that's not the lead story. And that's not to take away from, you know, Mexicans and the Central and Southern Americans, or South Americans that, you know, are being, you know, deported. However, I think it's important for you all to understand because I've seen quite a few blacks saying, well, why should we care about that? Why should we, you know, um, be concerned with people and, again, you know, I hate these buzzwords. I hate these cold words. But, you know, I hear this coming out of some black people's, you know, mouths, and they'll call them illegal immigrants. Now, I'm guilty of that as well, and I've been trying to change my language. However, you know, illegal immigrants, you know, that's that's terminology that's been used for a while. And, you know, I'm trying to say undocumented people. However, other words that go with that that are disturbing and that I don't use. You know, you have some of these people calling them rapists and, you know, murderers and drug dealers and all of these things. And they have no clue what what's going on with many of these people. And so that is where it becomes problematic. I mean, even saying illegal immigrants is problematic, but when you add all of these other titles to it, it really becomes seriously, you know, problematic. But important you guys go out and look this up because it can happen to you and again as I stated you need to pay attention and especially when you hear President Bannon talking about you know two three alleged illegal votes 
And that's why Hillary won the popular vote, because people who weren't supposed to vote voted. You need to pay attention. You need to pay attention. <laughs> so we shall see how this, you know, how how you move forward with this. But, um, yeah, you need to pay attention to what's going on and what's happening here and listen to the words that are coming out of their mouths and going up and researching it because it's only going to help you in the long run. So, you know, um, yeah, I want you to go and read that article where it was talking about how Afro-Portuguese people are being denied their birthright. And, you know, it's happened many places, but, you know, it's a good article, and I think you'll enjoy it. And, you know, do some Google searches. Find out more about these different cultures. You know, you'll you'll find a lot of interesting people and interesting history. But most importantly, you'll find out that we actually have more in common. You know, when I, when I talk about anti-blackness, you know, I'm, I'm not only talking about in America, you know, I'm talking globally. And, you know, what we're seeing now is this far-right movement happening around the world, right? And all this is is colonialism 2.0 colonialism remixed and that's why I keep telling you that it's important for you all to see you know same thing with Madame Le Pen over in France and what's happening you know over there and the interesting thing about it is she just had a meeting with Putin in Russia and I remember about a month or two ago I had posted on my wall a two-year-old article And it was talking about how China and Russia had made a trade deal um, directly with each other to kind of basically go around the U.S. and, you know, other um, trade um, packs and acts that are, you know, that are in place. And people were like, oh, that's two years old, you know, and I'm like, it doesn't matter if it's two years old, it's significant. Because you have other countries that are now going directly to Russia to negotiate deals. Now, you know, (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to say this. So basically, one of the things that I know that I've stated on the show, we had a caller that called in. And, you know, the conversation at that moment, we were talking about Putin and, and Trump and what was happening there. And one of the comments that I know that I made to the gentleman was, it's not that Putin has this obsession or this love for Donald Trump. You know, he knows how to play Donald Trump. And it's not that Putin is trying to minimize Donald Trump's role in America or minimize anyone. Basically, what it all boils down to is what Putin is doing is basically trying to diminish the image of America, period, across the board globally, and trying to set himself up as the new superpower, as the go-to person, as to, you know, uh, you know he wants to be that person 
who can negotiate all of these great deals and, you know, they're much better than America and just totally diminish our image in the eyes of the world. That's basically what it boils down to. And that is what is happening. And you need to pay attention. And I'm not sure if you all watched the different press conferences with Angela Merkel and Donald Trump and, you know, Mr. Trudeau and President Bannon. Yeah, I keep forgetting. Sometimes I slip up. And, um, you know, different world leaders in the way that Angela Merkel was treated was horrible. And I'm pretty sure if you're paying attention, she gave him the side eye a couple of times. So, you know, it's interesting, but it's important for you guys to see what's happening and to pay attention. And I know some people are like, why is she harping on all of this? Why isn't she talking about what's happening in this country? Who cares what happens over there? You really should care what's happening over in these other countries because it does have a direct um, a direct impact on us. See, you know, we are a global economy, and we need people to start thinking a little bit more globally, especially when it comes to economics. You know, whether we want to be tied to these other folks or not, it doesn't matter. We are. So we will talk about something um, local. You know, what I want to talk about are these missing black girls and these missing women. Now, um, I know I've posted several articles regarding missing girls in the Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, it's, it's horrible. And we need to figure out what's happening, you know, because it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, are these, you know, young girls and young women and even older women in some cases, because I'm not just looking at D.C. I'm looking at Chicago. I'm looking at New York. I'm looking at Los Angeles and everything in between, above and under, all right? And, you know, one good example is the Grim Reaper, Now, for those that aren't familiar with that story, there was this man in Los Angeles who was, you know, he was raping and killing um, black women that he figured nobody would look for, you know, um, women and girls that were deemed as expendable because, you know, either they were addicted to drugs or they were sex workers. So, you know, he deemed them as being expendable and worthless and nobody would come looking for them. And to make a long story short, a lot of black women and girls lost their lives to him. And, you know, like I said, this has been happening all over the country. And, you know, with that case, you know, one of the very few serial murder cases that have been given recognition, you know, as far as black serial killers are concerned. But, um, you know, this is kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, it's horrible that these black girls and these black women are coming up missing. And, you know, I, I can already hear in the background, what about black men and black boys? Yes, black men and black boys have been disappearing as well. But that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about these missing black girls and black women. And 
for some of them, because, you know, I was reading some stories this weekend, and they found a few of them safe and sound, but in a couple of cases, they ran away. And so my question turns to basically, are we returning them to an even worse situation in some cases, right? And so... You know, you got that whole gray area there. You know, but again, it's about even when you find the girls and women and, you know, they want to be where they are voluntarily, you know, there's a story that needs to be told in that particular situation because a lot of these girls and women are being snatched up off the street against their will. Let's make that clear. You know, but some of them may be running away from an environment or a situation. There was this one incident where the young woman ran away, and they brought her back home, and the father decided he was going to beat her and put it on video, and the mother was, you know, in the house and on the porch, you know, cheering him on, and they put that on social media. You know, so, you know, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of different things happening out here. However, you know, unfortunately, with a lot of black girls that come up missing, you know, our justice system, or so-called justice system, or the police, in many cases, they just label them runaways, and do not go and and do the investigations that they need to do to find, you know, some of these black children and black adults that have been, you know, reported missing. And, um, you know, something needs to be done about that. So they have people calling upon, you know, their federal and state legislators to – you know, review these cases. And for those of you who are not familiar, look up Rilia Alert, R-I-L-Y-A Alert. And basically, you know, it's because of a young young girl, four years old, who was part, who was part of the foster care system who went missing. And and in addition to that, you know, this was put in place because black and brown children were not getting the attention that they needed. So you have all of these different systems in place, you know, when white children go missing. And I forget the name of that alert that they put up for the white kids, but they created one for black kids. So go look up Rilia Alert, R-I-L-Y-A, and find out what that is and how this was put in place for black and brown children that have been you know, um, reported missing. And, you know, it's just as important for you guys to know these things because this can happen to you. This can happen to someone you love. It can happen to your neighbor. And I'm just at that point that I feel that we definitely need to be looking out for one another. So you have that. It was many, 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 many more things that I wanted to talk about, but we have more shows coming up, and I can talk about a number of these things. I know on the last show I was talking about how I was going to do a series um, highlighting the difference between 
white Christians and black Christians and what Christianity means in in the two different communities there. In addition to factoring in what's happening now with Donald Trump and white Christians in this country. And, you know, there are a lot of different factors in that particular conversation. So I'm going to start that next Sunday, you know, talking about white Christianity, black Christianity, giving you a foundation as to, you know, um, the role that Christianity plays in both communities because with white people, their faith, their Christianity is based on fear and oppression. And in a black community, and you know, I'm giving very simplified answers. It's not is, and it's not really necessarily that cut and dry. But for the sake of time, just you know, kind of cut and dry, which is why I'm going to break it down. But in a black community, you have that hope and change. You know, that platform that Barack Obama ran on. You know, that's what Christianity means for quite a few people of color. You know, hoping that things would get better, hoping that a change will occur. And and the role of the church and the place of the church in the black community is intertwined, is interwoven into it. So you'll hear people saying, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what's so interesting is, you know, if you were to cut out, you know, the religion or spirituality or whatever you want to call it in the black community, there will only be a small group of people still standing. And, again, you know, it's, it's kind of complicated, which is why I want to take my time and talk about it and break it down so that we can – you know, have that discussion. And so when I do that show, you know, I'm one of these people. I do enjoy people calling in and we can have a conversation about these things, you know. But over the years, I've learned that when I do particular series, I need to take the first hour just to, you know, get the points out, get the notes out, and then take calls the second hour. So that is the format that I will be using when I go through that particular series and pretty much series from that point forth. But, you know, there are several things that I want to talk about today. And, you know, um, trying to remember, I know I'm missing something. There's been so much happening. And it was something that I wanted to mention, but going over my head, I can't remember right now. So my apologies, I didn't write out any notes this week. So let me read you what I put in for the show today. So the title of today's show is White Allies, Diversity and Inclusion Minus Equality is White Supremacy Remixed, right? And so basically I was asking for you all to join me today so that we can discuss how all of this talk of diversity and inclusion is pretty much just smoke and mirrors, right? 
if your so-called allies are calling for diversity and inclusion but neglect to address equality, they truly are happy with the status quo. You will have some people of color rally around and advocate for diversity and inclusion, but only because it benefits them individually. Certain groups will tacitly agree through silence. Because, and, but that's because they have the same belief system and expect to be empowered for their quote-unquote loyalty. When you reject the status quo, challenge the myth of meritocracy, and question the motives of those involved, you are labeled a problem. You know, you're labeled problematic. And so that was just a general um, synopsis of what I want to talk to. I'm going to give you the name of two articles that I definitely want you guys to go out and read. The first one, the title is How to Uphold White Supremacy by Focusing on Diversity and Inclusion. And again, that's How to Uphold White Supremacy by Focusing on Diversity and Inclusion. And it was written by... Kyra or Kira, I apologize, you know, if I'm destroying your name, you know, I've been known to do that. So you can find that on Model View Culture website, Model View Culture. And it's actually a really, really good article. You know, I think the presiding theme in it is liberalism's inherent racism, right? So I want you to go and to read that, and another one that I would like for you guys to go and read, and this was in The Guardian. The title of this article, Meritocracy, the Great Delusion that Ingrains Inequality. And again, that title is Meritocracy, the Great Delusion that Ingrains Inequality. And it was written by Joe Littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R. Joe, J-O, Littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R. And this is an excellent article as well, right? And so, you know, it's it's really interesting when you have people out here um, trying to sell you these pipe dreams, right, and justify, you know, inequality that, you know, that is pervasive. Another article that I thought that you should read, because I think it's an interesting article, is titled, How Umer Johnson Cured Me of Being a Hidden Hotep. And again, How Umar Johnson Cured Me of Being a Hidden Hotep. It was written by Jason Johnson. Again, his name is Jason Johnson, and this was on The Root. And that is a great article. You know, I think you all enjoy it. I'll try to add it to the Blog Talk Radio, put some links in there for you. That way you can go to the show notes and, you know, kind of click. And the fourth article is, What is this Hotep and Alt-Right Alliance? And again, what is this Alt-Right what is this Hotep and Alt-Right Alliance? And this was written February 8th of this year, <laughs> and it was written by Hotep Jesus, right? And so the site is called Hotep Nation. And it's actually, you know, a really, really, really good article. And there's quite a bit that I want you all to take away 
from these four articles. So, you know, we're going to talk about these today and and kind of get an indication and an idea as to what direction that we are going in. And so I see we have a caller. Let me pick this up before we get started. And all right, area code 314. May I ask who's calling and what is your question or comment? Well, I'm calling from the Midwest. I was reading some of these uh, signs you got going on back and forth on your your little billboard. But uh, I still question what do people define as white supremacists, white supremacy, and this term racism. Uh, you know, racism. Any of these terms is is legal until you get to the point where you deny a citizen of their civil rights. Then at that point, then don't you think that that's when it becomes illegal? Uh, anything before that is just a people's feeling, a person's feeling. Uh, white supremacy. I I never had accept that as being that the whites consider themselves as better and therefore supreme. I think it it lies along I don't think but I believe it I believe more so that it lies along the line of economic and and material dominance where they want to uh control your very essence. And when you look at who's behind that then it's quite natural. It's not quite natural but more often than not, it's somebody that's white. When it comes to agriculture, your transportation, your communication, and I say where the way to defeat that is to compete against it. Uh, if okay, you, if, if and, see, can... and see, and what, and what you're mainly talking about is systemic and institutionalized racism. You know that's that seems to be the general gist of your of your comment here. However, well, here's, let me you know, let me better yeah. explain it because it's really not that. It's that if if you if uh, if somebody if you see an industry or an area that you want to get into, and quite naturally it's going to be divided up amongst a group of people that's involved in that, a group of entities, a group of companies, and they're probably white-led. And if you want to establish your presence that you're a black company, you have to go in and do the thing that's necessary to take pieces of the slices that's already established to form your own slice. And at that point in time, you're competing against the other entities there that happen to be white whether it's agriculture or whatever it is. Now, if somebody, like you don't have some instance like you had this one guy who stabbed this man. Yes, that's a, that's not on criminal, but his intent was to, to kill somebody black. Then, yes, that's racist. But for a white person to say that they don't like you, that's not racist. Because you have blacks that say that they don't like you. No, it's not. You know. <laughs> oh, so you don't when, consider? Okay. Well, I mean, I if know. someone says that they don't they don't like you, that's a lot different than someone walking up to you and saying, "I hate your nigger ass and the rest of you niggers." And that was what I meant to bring up earlier about the the white guy 
that went to New York and plunged twenty Yeah, that's what he got was criminal and, and, and because of his intentions, racist. Well, for somebody to say they don't like you, that's not racist. I, I know a lot of cases where uh, that is said, not even only that, but the, when we was kids, uh, we was taught on who not to bring home, uh, especially to marry. Now, I'm black. But, again, I know you some know, blacks who are developing you, property. In their well, I mean, the thing is, is, is that, you know, we're not talking about feelings per se. We're talking about you know. a system, and we're talking about people who understand and know that this system is in place and that the system is set up to benefit them disproportionately, and many of them having absolutely no desire to deconstruct or dismantle that system or to level the playing field because it benefits them and that's the way that they want to keep it. Now, regarding the different industries that are out here, and, you know, I'll give you one example, marijuana. Mm -hmm. So black farmers are being kept out of the, the marijuana industry. Um, and when you go and you look at these different dispensaries and kiosks across the country that are popping up, but especially in states that have legalized marijuana, again, you have these white people, generally white men, that are benefiting from you know the the legalization of marijuana while we still have you know you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, really, of black, brown, and red people in jail because of marijuana offenses. And, and Well, and that's again, the offense. That that's the not has nothing to do with the dispensary. You're mixing the two. Well, 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 I mean, you got no, people that's applying for is, a dispensary no, license. But what I'm saying is, again, what I'm saying is you have people that have been incarcerated for having a nickel bag or a dime bag yeah. or what have you. But now you have these white men that are becoming multimillionaires and billionaires on an industry and on on a plant or an herb or whatever you want to call it that have sent Since it's been made know, millions of black boys and men and brown boys and men to jail and women. You know, I can't leave the women out. So what I'm saying is, you know, to get into that industry, you know, you're saying just, oh, go and get you a place and carve it out. It's not quite that simple, especially Well, I know some black dispensers in Illinois now. I know some black dispensers so in Illinois. What I'm, saying, they what I'm saying is, again, I'm not saying that it's not possible. What I'm saying is is that you have to work a hell of a lot harder to even get, you know, you know, one of the a percentage, you know, of what they're making and what they're doing. And in many cases, you know, they they will only allow a few in. See, that's the thing. And so then, you know, the people that you know that have their dispensaries, I mean, are they connected to someone? Are they politically connected? Are they related to someone? Because that plays a part as well. I mean, you know, so you got to look at all. Well, you know, I have a little Pookie and Ray Ray from the block. A little Pookie and Ray Ray from the block that are trying to, you know, trying to find a better way to live that may want to open up their own dispensary. The rules that are in place make it impossible. You know, a little Pookie well, and Ray Ray right can't afford that. a million-dollar insurance policy. You know, you're right and, about that, but so, a lot of them can, though, ma'am. Let's be honest now. We we talk about the, the few that can't, or maybe you can say the many that can't. 
But I know people myself, I got federal firearm license. I know blacks has got a federal firearm license where they can sell ammunition, guns, explosives. But the opportunities there exist if you meet the criteria. And that's just about it anyway. But what I want to ask you, there's been a, there was some uh, incidents, for instance, in Georgia and other places in the country where it has to do with high school proms. And you had a white groups and that wanted to have an all-white prom on their own private, off the public, not on the school grounds, on their own private venue. And you had blacks that was uh, complaining about that. Those people were not violating any laws. They just wanted to do something by themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But then in another case you had here in St. Louis, where I am, at Harris Stowe uh, University, used to be Harris Stowe College, where this white woman sued and said that she was uh, denied in promotion and said that it was racist, and she won a $5 million suit, which they did show that uh, able to prove that. So you see the two cases, the two instances there. Whites should be able to have a venue, and they can call it all white if they want to. They're not violating anybody's rights, not hurting anybody. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And Black you know, do what's it also. Interesting and, and what's so interesting about the comment that you made regarding, you know, whites having all white venues, that's more of the rule as opposed to the exception. And, you know, that's what I find interesting in this country. That's because there's more of them in the country, would you say? Yeah. And so, but the thing is, is that, you know, what's interesting about it is that, you know, again, that's more of the rule than the exception. And, you know, people of color in this country, you know, pretty much are, you know, forced to assimilate in many cases. But regarding what you said about, you know, white people having their own white prom on their own private white land, that's their land. That's what they want to do. That's They have a right to do that. It doesn't necessarily make it right. And I don't want to say morally right because people define morals different, many different ways um, in regards to when you said that you have your federal firearms license. A lot of black people do. And especially in the political and cultural climate that we have, that we now live in, I would advise everybody to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Go and learn how to shoot straight and learn how to clean your gun. Now, regarding people being able to sell firearms, you know, um, if you have them and you have them available, depending on what state you're in, you know, that determines whether you can sell or what have you at some of these gun shows. But, again, you know, when we're talking about white supremacy, in most cases we're talking about it from a systemic and institutional institutional level as opposed to a one-on-one or personal level. Now, you know, if you have a white person who says that they don't like you because you're black, you know, what the caller was saying was, oh, that's just hurt feelings, and you're just upset because they don't like you. And so, I mean, you're walking a tight line right there because there's a difference between a white person telling you that they don't like you because you're black 
and a white person who drives from Maryland to New York to stab and kill black men that he stalked over, you know, a certain amount of time. And, and he practiced on the one black man that he did kill. And his intention was to go to Times Square and, I guess, you know, start his race war. He wasn't the first one to have done that. There was a couple in Las Vegas that wanted to start the race war, same thing with Dylan Roof and a number of other people. And we're starting to see more and more incidents like this. Now, that's not to say that these incidents had not been taking place even before then. However, with the advent of the Internet and the technology, we're able to share these stories more, but also, again, because President Bannon has created, you know, a culture of fear, if you will, in this country. You know, people are paying more attention to that and putting it out. So, you know, um, the whole thing is, you know, really interesting. But no, I still stand on what I stated. You know, there are certain industries that are out there, and there are barriers put in place to ensure that only certain sectors of society can enter into that particular industry with relative ease. Because regarding um, white people, they have a head start. They definitely have been given a head start. And when we talk about this wealth inequality, you know, uh, the, the basis of the wealth inequality is that white people are able to pass down wealth to their children, whereas many people of color, that that has not been the case. They have not been able to pass anything down or to leave anything to their children. So we need to take all that into consideration. But now when I'm talking about white supremacy, for the most part, I'm talking about institutionalized and, and systemic racism. So um, when you start talking about individuals, you know, again, it's a little bit more detailed and you have to go into, you know, this a little bit more. But, yeah, so that was interesting. So thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. And so, so yeah, getting back to what we were talking about. So, you know, this show came about because of a conversation that I had with someone and we were talking about these particular articles and laughing about some of the points that had been made. And, you know, I've done shows specifically talking to and about white allies. And so what's so interesting is the buzzwords today, you know, in, in this particular um, cultural context, you know, the buzzwords are diversity and inclusion. And you have many people heading up these different particular organizations and and industries or what have you, and all you hear now is diversity, inclusion, diversity, inclusion, and ally. And there are many of us that are just absolutely sick of hearing these words, right? And the reason for it is with many of these different um, people and, and what they're trying to do is, again, smoke and mirrors, bring up these buzzwords to basically shield themselves, you know, from being called racist. And it's so interesting because in many cases they'll find, you know, their one or two black best friends to go out to to 
preach to the world that this is this organization is different. You know, they're diverse. Look at me, I'm here. You know, but at the same time, you know, these same particular organizations and people um have done absolutely nothing, you know, to make the playing field equal. I mean, giving you a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars, that's nothing. That's a drop in a bucket. And if you're not talking about equality, then, you know, again, you're using diversity and inclusion as Teflon to try to <laughs> to try to make the accusations of racism or sexism or homophobia, transphobia. You're trying to make it so that it just slides right off and that you can pull out your new black best friend or your, you know, your Latino or Latina brother-in-law, sister-in-law, cousin, or, you know, the help. You know, and the same thing for blacks, they can be the help. You know, I've said on a number of occasions on this show, in many of these situations, what they do is they bring out black and brown people to claim that there is diversity. However, the only real expectations they have of many of the people that they bring in that are non-white, basically they expect you to be the entertainment or the help. And um, when I say the help, that can be that can mean a number of things. You know, not necessarily you're there to serve them their food or anything like that, but also but it could be in such a way that they put certain blacks and Latinos and indigenous and, you know, Muslims or ex Muslims in place in an effort to attract other non whites to their organization. And one of the reasons why they want to do that, number one, membership dollars and membership numbers. But in addition to that, being able to keep an eye on different particular groups and people while pushing down their talking points and their agenda. And in many cases, you know, the people of color that they have in place, they're benefiting individually. And, you know, they're kind of like the de facto overseers. And that's how I look at that situation. And I've been saying that for a while, which is why in certain situations, you know, I totally shit on some of these people and their calls for diversity because in in many cases they don't mean it. It just sounds good. And most white people or Eurocentric folks do not like being called racist. And, you know, we've talked about white fragility and we've talked about white liberalism and, you know, one of the things that Dr. Martin Luther King stated was how basically, you know, he was trying to figure out if he was leading, you know, the black community into a much worse situation. And he talked about the so-called allies and the white liberals and how they were, in essence, holding black people back and holding back the movement due to the fact that they felt that, you know, it wasn't time yet, or that some of the tactics were a little bit too aggressive. And, you know, what's so interesting is that they want you to remain passive and docile. 
And when it gets to the point where you have to assert yourself and show any type of aggression, you are then labeled problematic, and these same so-called allies will leave you flailing in the wind and will say, no, that's not – you know, that's not my type of black person. They're not my kind of people, right? And, you know, it's, it's just it's really interesting because these are the same ones that will leave you out there holding the bag. And so, you know, there's a fine line there. And even on this show, you know, I, you know, I speak my mind. And in some cases, I really do bridle my tongue quite a bit with a lot of the things that I believe and that I want to say. And one of the reasons for that is, again, I'm here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. I'm not necessarily trying to recruit alkalites or or anyone or anything of that nature. I want you to think for yourself, even if you know, it's the total antipathy to what I believe, and I'm really okay with that. But, you know, I want people to see what's happening. And so, you know, I used Martin Luther King a minute ago. What's interesting is that some of these same people will take, you know, quotes from Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or, you know, a number of, you know, black civil rights icons and and use them out of context and try to use them to to keep you know people of color under control you know and and use it to you know to shame them if you will and so you know some examples of that is during hurricane katrina number 1 they kept calling the black people refugees and kept saying that they were looting the stores, you know, getting food because they were hungry. But when the same situation occurred and it was white people, oh, look at the poor little people. They need help. You know, they were not called refugees, and they were not called looters. They were searching for food. They were searching for, you know, staples, right? And it's just so interesting because this is why I tell people to pay attention to the press and pay attention to how these stories are reported. You know, you have these double standards out here. And, you know, mainly when they talk about people of color, they talk about us in some of the most derogatory manners, you know, that they can find, while yet they still want to claim that they are allies, and that they are on our side, and they want what's best for them. And I'll be the first one to tell you, those same white allies, they are not going to give up their privileges to accommodate, you know, other people of color. And that's the environment that we're living in, this toxic environment that we're trying to navigate through with President Bannon and the toxicity that's coming from that particular administration. And, you know, it hasn't even been 100 days. And look at what's happening. And, you know, what's so interesting is you'll have some of these white progressive liberals out here saying, well, that's just one person. You can't judge us all by that one person, but in turn, that's what you do to people of color. 
You judge the entire community based on the actions of one or two people. And getting back to the story of the gentleman that was killed in New York by that white supremacist domestic terrorist, right, when they printed the story, they that 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 poor black man that died, they printed out his entire um criminal history. So they were putting his his character on trial in the newspaper. And this is what happens with a lot of people of color in situations like this. Even if they're the victim, they are still put on trial, you know, in 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 the court of public opinion. Whereas the white predator, perpetrator, or whatever you want to call them, domestic terrorists, generally white men, you know, they're painted as lone wolves or misunderstood and, you know, basically asking people to give this person the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe they heard all of this propaganda and they believed it, just like you had white people out here that were trying to pick up where Dylan Roof you know, left off saying that they wanted to start the race war and they wanted to continue what Dylan Roof had done. And, again, those stories are quickly pushed to the back. And so, again, you know, like I said, the only time it's called domestic terrorism is when white people are scared or the victims. Now, it's going to be interesting if they charge that one domestic terrorist with domestic terrorists in a hate crime because I've seen some of, you know, the rhetoric behind that particular situation, and we shall see. You know, but again, it's only terrorism when white people are afraid. And, you know, just to kind of sum it up in a nutshell, you know, white people are afraid of black people. Period. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, we're having such a hard time making any real headway in this, you know, in this country. And so, you know, again, this country doesn't want to deal along with this legacy of racism and discrimination. They don't want to talk about that. They want to say that racism is dead and that it no longer exists. And the reason why racism is rearing its ugly head again is because black people and brown people and red people and yellow people, that we won't stop talking about it. If we stop talking about racism, it'll go away. And so, again, you know, when we start talking about the advantages that white people have had, in this country, you know, they tend to get upset about it. And one of the very, you know, one of the main, you know, um, topics, or not topics, but one of the main excuses that you will hear is, oh, my forefathers worked hard. No, 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 no. Many of them were given their wealth. I want you to go back and do some reading on homesteading. You know, I want you to put in the code words, you know, homesteading, America, um, white privilege. And then also do another Google search with affirmative action, white people. You will be surprised at what you hear and what you read and what you see. And I've had a number of, you know, different people, particularly white people, 
who have contacted me and said, well, we didn't know any of this had happened. We never knew. And so, okay, now you know. Now what are you going to do with that knowledge? Are you going to go and help to deconstruct and dismantle this system that disproportionately, you know, privileges you and your community? Oh, that's hard? No shit. Try loving it. And so, you know, I try to get people to try to look at these things from, you know, different perspectives, you know, and I do that in my life as well, you know, when I'm trying to understand certain things in certain situations. But, again, you know, the way that people are throwing around the words diversity and inclusion, you know, again, you know, it's like Teflon. You know, they're trying to make the word racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, they just want it to fall off of them and not attach itself. And they feel as long as they can say that they've had these particular classes or workshops or they've hired a diversity officer. And what is so funny is I've seen, you know, sometimes I'll go on the websites for different universities and different corporations and, you know, see who their diversity officers are or their diversity, you know, administrators or whatever they're calling them. And most of the time it's white people. And it's just, it's really interesting. So, you know, to promote diversity, you're going to hire a white person to promote diversity. And in some cases, white people that do not have any type of contact with black people. And so, you know, it's interesting. I know I posted an article, and it was talking about redlining. And, um, yeah, guys, it's so much that needs to be talked about. But, yeah, with that diversity in, in inclusion, you know, many of them try to use that as a shield. But in some cases, it's, used, it's, it's talked about in a very derogatory way, you know, because <laughs> – you know, sometimes you'll have people who will say or tell their real thoughts when they think no one around them will, you know, there are no people of color around them that can complain. So, you know, they'll roll their eyes and call the person of color a diversity hire or an EEO hire or, you know, something to that effect. And so when you start talking about diversity and inclusion in, in in that particular manner, it becomes a pejorative, right? And so, and again, in many cases, these are your so-called progressive liberals. And, and this is one of the reasons why you hear me bitching and moaning about a lot of these mainstream movements and organizations because um, – you know, I want you really to read this article because, you know, it's talking about the different things that are happening. And it was another article that I put on my wall, and that one I really want you to read. And it's talking about this white gay male that's a movie director, and and he's going – I forgot the name of the movie. I think it's called Flounce. I don't remember, so bear with me. But it's talking about the trans community ballroom culture which started with black and Latino 
um, trans people, trans women, and this was their way of escape. This was their way of a, of expressing themselves, just a number of things. And they have this white male directing it, and he's directed a number of other movies. And you just really have to read the article because, um, you know, the, the author of the article was talking about how in some of this guy's work there would be problematic scenes or or stereotypes being, you know, being put forth in his movies and how it would be done with a wink and a twinkle, right? And so, you know, they're trying to be subtle about it, but it's still there. And, you know, this person was also talking about how, you know, these stories, you know, should be presented through a number of different lenses, if you will, because the gay movement as we know it now would not have happened if black and Latino trans women of color had not fought back. And so in that article, it talks about how the brick that was held in the hands of black and Latino women, how it went from being held in their hands and them fighting back to white people, you know, predominantly white men, being the face of these movements and how that comes about. And that happens more often than people want to recognize or acknowledge. And so you have someone like me and I come out here and I'm talking about this, you know, of course, you get all of these different, you know, adjectives that they like to use to describe me and describe what I'm putting out here. You know, um, you know what I love is negative. You know, and I you know, and it's interesting because any, you know, with certain people, if you're not agreeing with them, anything that comes out of your mouth is negative, right? Anything that they don't agree with, then that's fake news. Right? That's how you define that shit. So, you know, again, we got to go back. And in order for us to make any real strides, we're going to have to drop the Democrats and the Republicans. We're going to have to challenge this liberalism, we got to, you know, especially these so-called progressive liberals, because many of them are, in my opinion, are even more racist than many of these conservative, you know, right-wing nut jobs, you know, and that includes Tea Partiers and some libertarians. And so we need to start challenging that, but also, you know, making a way. I think it's time for a third party to rise. I think it's time for us to just walk away and give them their goddamn table back. Fuck that. You know, I don't even know why many of you all want to be at the table. So, I mean, you know, this one article is is actually, you know, it's outstanding, all four of them. And, um you know, one of the examples that I can give you, a current modern-day example, right? And, you know, the gay rights movement is still, you know, in effect and is still happening. And so when you hear me talk about these, you know, particular movements, when I say, when, when I say mainstream, I mean white folks. And generally when I'm talking, I'm talking about people of color. When I when when I say that I'm supporting them, and a lot of these mainstream movements and organizations, I do not support. 
because, again, in many cases, they fail to address intersectionality. You know, in many cases, they don't want to address racism. You know, and, and you know, what's so interesting is with that Women's March and how they're, you know, creating their network, you know, what I want to see is these same white women in your pussy hats. Why aren't you out here talking about the black women and girls that are missing? There is a lot you can do to help with that particular situation. Where are you? Where are you? You know, they had a meeting about, you know, what's happening with these 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 young girls and these women that are disappearing. All I saw was a bunch of black folks. Where were you? All lives matter, right? Where were you? But yet you want to get angry with black organizers and activists who absolutely refuse to do your footwork, who absolutely refuse to be your handmaidens. And what's so interesting was, you know, there has been this phenomenon and this isn't new, but, you know, it's starting to pick up some steam. And what's happening is you'll have these white people who will put up these black pictures or avatars of themselves, not only on Twitter but on Facebook, and give them a, give themselves a name that they, I guess, they consider as ethnic and and try to present themselves as being people of color. And, you know, and they've, you know, we've been calling them out left and right. You see it all the time. And so it's just interesting that this is happening. And I want you to pay attention to that because when you have people like Rachel Dolezal and her performative blackness, you know, it's, it's you know, I'm just amazed. And, you know, I'm like, what's what's next? You know, she has some new African name. The only part I can remember is Yalo. And what's so interesting about that is some people feel that she's, you know, trolling the black community. And at this point, I don't know what to believe, but it's it's interesting. But anyway, um, you know, going back to diversity and inclusion, again, it's all about politics. It's about politics and it's about images. It's about being able to deflect charges of racism, sexism, the phobias, and all of that. And it means absolutely nothing. Because if there is no action behind that, and when I say action, I'm talking about working with these, you know, these marginalized groups to create a level playing field to create equality. If they're not talking to you about equality, then it's bullshit. And they're only inviting you to talk about so-called diversity and inclusion so that they can stop, you know, so that they can get people to stop calling them racist. And so what's interesting is, you know, I I received, you know, um, a request. Now, I've made myself quite clear on this show if you're having a conference and it's a bunch of white people there, particularly older white people there, and you want me to come and talk about racism and diversity and inclusion, 
I'm going to give you the middle finger and say, fuck you. Why? You know what the hell is going on out here? You know what white people say when we're not around? Why do you want us to continue to come to these 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 conferences and conventions to tell you about shit that you know about that you live every day? Are you one of the ones that are laughing? If you're not laughing and you ignore it, you may as well laugh because if you're not challenging it and critiquing it and calling that person out who's saying, oh, diversity and rolling their eyes or, you know, what have you, you're just as bad as they are. And what's interesting is many of you all who are in that particular position, you're one of the ones running around calling yourself social justice warriors and you're leading the resistance And you can't talk to these people, you know, about their racism or their sexism or any of these things. You know, you're afraid to do so, you know, let alone talk to someone in your family or your friends, you know, and you won't call these other folks out. Why? Because you want them to invite you next year to speak again, which is bullshit. And that's just not white people. You have a lot of black people that are doing the same thing. And so, you know, I'm not going to come and talk to you about diversity and inclusion and then, you know, then go away. And then you do absolutely nothing after that. Additionally, with many of these same, you know, you know, people and organizations, the tickets are so expensive that the very people that you want us to come and talk about, you know, you want us to talk about Black Lives Matter. You want us to talk about, you know, the resistance. You want us to talk about, you know, again, your buzzwords, diversity and inclusion. And you want to feel good for that moment. And the very next day, you go back to the same old bullshit. And what's so interesting is, you know, some of the people that do accept these invitations and go out, again, you know, what's interesting is in, in, in some cases, the information that is being presented is ahistorical. But in other cases, and including some of those cases, it's being whitewashed. The history is being rewritten. And so, you know, that's why I kind of brought up the, you know, the article talking about, Hotep and alt-right. Now, I don't call them Hoteppers anymore because I have a friend, well, not just a friend, I have several friends that are part of that particular community and culture. But one friend in particular, he was like, Cam, and so he sat me down, told me why I was problematic, I gave my word, and, you know, I no longer call them that, I call them no-teppers, right? But that was the name of the article, and I didn't write the article. But, um, you know, What's so interesting is you have some people from that black nationalist community hooking up with the people from the white nationalist community and finding solidarity. And the reason for that is most of their message is the same regarding patriarchy, regarding capitalism, and a number of other things, you know, and it's it's dangerous, and what happens is the reason why they can agree on these things because they both believe in supremacy. You know, they both believe in white supremacy, but the other one just believes it in blackface. And what's so interesting, going back to the caller earlier, you know, that was talking about competition and carving out a niche for yourself, black capitalism is not going to save us. 
is not going to help us. And I posted a couple of articles. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to add them to um, this show. So um, later on tonight I'll add them and include the article so you'll see the little hyperlinks embedded in the show notes. But, um, you know, again, you know, what's so interesting is with many of these organizations, again, they fail to embrace intersectionality. And when they call themselves embracing it, you know, what's unfortunate and what I've seen in, in some cases is they're embracing it in such a manner that they can cap can capitalize off of it. And I see a lot of white women, whether they're cis or trans, running around calling themselves social justice warriors, civil rights activists, and claiming that they're leading the resistance, right? And all they're doing is trying to capitalize on these particular issues and this situation and 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 keep themselves relevant. And so what was interesting is um eh, I don't even know if I want to broach that yet. So anyway, I just want you all to go out and pay attention to that. Um in many of these communities, like I said with that white director um you know telling the stories, you know, or the story of you know, black and Puerto Rican or, you know, trans women of color is when you get into a situation like that, it closes the door because why aren't trans women of color that are directors and, you know, why why aren't they being hired? Why aren't they being hired as writers, as consultants, and all of these different things. And most importantly, some of these people are still alive. Why aren't you going to the originators? And so, you know, I have so many issues. And what happens is basically white people have been taught not to listen to black people when we say that there is a problem there and 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 break it down for you guys. They've been taught to only listen to other white people. And in many cases, people of color behave the same way. They will only believe it if it comes out of the mouth of a white person. And we need to stop that. It needs to be challenged and critiqued immediately because what happens is it closes those environments, it closes those spaces, it closes those opportunities to people who are deserving of them. And so, you know, you have all of these identities out here. And, um, you know, I want to say something, but I'm not because I don't want to get caught up in the middle of a shit storm. But, you know, I have some views around some of this that, you know, I know are extremely um, inflammatory, you know, but um, it needs to be addressed. And so, you know, you'll hear the excuse, oh, well, he's, you know, directed, you know, five movies. He has a television series and blah, blah, blah. He's earned his way. 
which takes us into this damn myth of meritocracy and how that creates inequality and maintains inequality. So, you know, it's it's a lot that's happening out here. You have some people out here that are delusional, black and white, who feel as though they want to create utopian communities, utopian environments. That's never going to happen. So you need to wake up from that dream because that's never going to happen. You know, and so, you know, again, I just find it ironic that President Bannon said that he wanted to create a level playing field for American companies and workers, right? And look at his cabinet. Look at the people that are around him. Look at the people that he's putting in charge. Now, that is how you dismantle and destroy a system from within. That is what they are doing, and you need to pay attention to it because what happened this week with, you know, the American Health Care Act, it failed. But what they're going to start doing is putting policies and laws in place to ensure that the American or the Affordable Care Act fails. So you need to be diligent and paying attention to what's happening and see how they're going to start trying to dismantle it, you know, because from the inside. Because you have to remember, most of the governorships are Republican. Most of these state legislatures are Republican majority. Federal, Republican majority, House and Senate, Republican president. They're trying to destroy the system as we know it from the inside out. However, The resistance is real. And us, the people, we can stop this. Because what's happening with these senators and these representatives, both, you know, on the state level, federal level, even a local level with your aldermen and your commissioners, we are the ones that have the power. And I've said a long time ago we needed to vote them all out. And, you know, somebody raised a very, very good point. And, I mean, it's a point that I've always taken into consideration. If we get rid of them, who are we going to replace them with? And, you know, that's a totally different dilemma. But, you know, again, go back and read and see what's happening and how all of this is being set up. But for you, you will have some people out here that are part of that alt-right and, you know, they'll claim, well, I have black friends. I don't like black people, but I got one black friend. He's different, all right? And, <laughs> and in, in many cases, you know, again, their agenda is the same. And in some cases, that same person of color you know, is benefiting individually, personally, from that alliance, that friendship, or whatever you may want to call it. But you need to take a look to see what's happening behind the scenes. Because in all actuality, they believe in the same thing. One just believes it in white face, and the other one believes it in, in black face. But it's the same shit. 
And so, you know, many of these communities um, that are out here that, you know, some would call, you know, marginalized communities and movements, what have you, you know, again, I do not support, you know, a lot of these mainstream groups and movements because I see what they're doing. And they're capitalizing off of the pain, the blood, sweat, and tears that other people, you know, have, you know, put into this game, put into. And it's just interesting because they come in and they take over. And when you will not allow them to take over, then you're problematic. When you call them out on their bullshit, then you're problematic. When you refuse to allow them to use you as one of their little tools, then you're problematic, right? And there were some things that I had to learn over the last, you know, six, seven years. And some of those lessons were painful, right? You know, that's life. You know, but you should learn from the particular situations so that you do not continue to commit the same problems or the same, you know, issues over and over again. You know, put yourself in a position whereas, you know, (laughs) you have problems with yourself because you start wondering, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And so one of the things that I've done and I will continue to do is, you know, when when I have certain people approach me for whatever, you know, the first thing I want to know is if they are a self-serving opportunist. And in many cases, the answer to that question is yes. And I refuse to allow myself to get caught up in 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 that particular, you know, heat or hype of the moment. You know, you have a lot of folks out here bandwagoning, and that's an issue too. But, you know, again, going back to this, you know, you'll, you know, you'll hear all kinds of bullshit excuses, you know, and this, you know, meritocracy shit is bullshit. And what's so interesting is I want to know, why there are some white people and organizations out here who feel that they can tell our stories better than we can, that can tell, you know, tell our history better than we can. But these are the same people who do not believe you when you tell them about the racism and the sexism and the phobias that you deal with. They don't believe you until an anvil drops on their head and they have no choice but to see it. And in many cases, they still try to find excuses for it. Some of the excuses that I heard made for Dylan Roof and that I see being made for, you know, this this damn assassin white domestic terrorist in New York. And what's happening is, you know, these alt-right white nationalist clan groups are in an uproar in, in in an uproar about what he did, and now he's being characterized, right? 
And they were also in an uproar when that couple from Stone Mountain, Georgia, was sentenced to, you know, a couple of decades in prison, right, or close to a couple of decades, saying that, you know, that that was too harsh. And you combine that with the fact that, you know, President Bannon and his administration is creating this this new group that's going to focus primarily on immigrants. And a lot of the money and resources that were being utilized to keep an eye on white supremacists and other groups around the country, that money is going is being shifted to that group. And you have white people running out here harming other people, saying that they want to kill a Muslim or they want to kill a black or a Mexican and all of this other stuff. And, you know, some of them said, you know, when they were questioned, they said, well, we thought that was what we were supposed to do. And and I'm supposed to feel like I'm safe in this country. I'm supposed to feel like I'm equal, that I have the same opportunities as everybody else, that I'm valued, that I'm celebrated. Tell me how. How do I believe those things? Why am I supposed to believe those things? To make you feel comfortable? Now, I've made it clear on this show, some of the shit that I talk about, I, it's done on purpose. I am not here to make you uncomfortable, I mean, to make you comfortable. I'm here to cause you discomfort. That is what I do. And yet you continue to listen to the show. So I'm, I can only hope that you're learning from this. And I'm talking to everybody because I know there are some black people who are very uncomfortable with some of the things that I talk about and the manner in which I, I, you know, I say some of these things. Good. I want you to think. And, you know, so what's interesting is the caller that called in earlier you know, he said something that I've heard, you know, a few other people of color say, not very many, but you have some people out here that say, you know, and Morgan Freeman said something to the same effect about how white supremacy and racism doesn't really affect or impact them because they reject it. And I think Lee Daniels said something to that effect, too. And, you know, what's so interesting about it is so you deny or or you do not feel racism or white supremacy because you reject it. So since you don't feel, feel it and you don't believe it exists, then the rest of us, you know, what is it? You know, fill in the blank. I'm just trying to understand. You reject racism. You reject white supremacy. Therefore, it does not exist. That's what I'm hearing from you. 
And so, <laughs> so you know, again, it's it's really interesting in in how sometimes how it's framed, and it's framed in such a way that oh, well, your feelings are hurt. That's why you feel that way. But those are your emotions, and emotions aren't necessarily backed by facts. That's what I'm hearing from you. And so, you know, it gets real interesting, you know, because in many cases, you know, when I get phone calls like that, it's generally from, you know, white people, particularly white men, trying to call in and center their whiteness to justify, you know, some of the things that they believe in and some of the things that basically that can shield them from, you know, criticism or critique. And is you know, you see a lot of that. And we're going to talk about it, you know, quite a bit more. But, yeah, you know, white women marchers from earlier this year, where were you? Where are you? It's well over 64,000 missing black women and girls. Where are you? Why are you not prioritizing that? And like I said, in some cases, you know, returning some of these people to environments that may be toxic. So what are we going to do about that? How do we help these women and girls? What are we putting in place to help them start over, to help them move forward, to help them build up their esteem? What are we doing? What are you doing? What role will you play in this? Since you all are leading a resistance, (laughs) and it's so funny because the resistance, yet again, started with people of color, you know, vowing to resist and not to accept. And the faces that I see, for the most part, when when I see these, you know, these news shows, you know, predominantly are white folks being interviewed by other white folks. What say you, diversity officer, administrator? You couldn't find any black people? Couldn't find any Latino or Latinx? folks, Native Americans, Asian, Muslim, any damn body. But you just enjoy talking to Buffy and Jody, right? Because they understand you. You have something in common. How does that work? So anyway... Like I said, diversion and inclusion minus equality is white supremacy remixed. And if they're not talking about helping you make it to the next level, sitting down with you and putting together a plan of action and actually putting in some mentoring hours and helping you you know, referring you to different classes, you know, sending you to help you with some things and and 
you know, sitting down with some of their people. If they're not doing any of that, you're just a prop. And I know that's hard for some people to accept and to come to terms with, but it's true. And all of this, for many of them, they're only doing it to make themselves look good. And so I guess one of the challenges that I would put out there is, you know, if you're having, you know, conference, convention, or whatever the hell is going on over there, and not only that, but I mean in your day-to-day operations, you know, I'm challenging these organizations, these mainstream organizations and individuals to take at least 10% of their proceeds and reinvest it in marginalized communities that have leadership that look like the people that they're representing. So put your money where your mouth is. And for, you know, the folks that are out here, especially the people of color, that, you know, some of them that they bring in that are just being brought in to basically deflect charges of racism, sexism, you know, homophobia, transphobia. I mean, how can you live with yourself? You know, and what I mean by that is the ones that know. You know if you're being brought in just to silence some of the dissenters. And you also know if you're being brought in and it's genuine and they really want to learn, they really want to know. Because it's really interesting because when you start talking about some of these things with these different groups and these different people, you know, as soon as you get started, you see the defense shields come up. And they just can't wait to Q&A. If they stay long enough, you know, some of them walk out of the room when you start presenting some of these hard truths. And when you start talking about, okay, you're saying you believe in diversity and inclusion, so what are you going to do? How are you going to help me to outreach to, you know, to these marginalized people so that I can help them to understand and we can create an environment, a safe space, for them to, you know, be able to be themselves and express themselves. While at the same time, you should be addressing those within your organization, you know, whether they're volunteers or paid people, as well as your membership, working with them and in, 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 in creating an environment that is not toxic. And what's so interesting is that in many of these cases, they're scared to say anything to their general membership. And so it becomes becomes really easy for them to scapegoat, you know, the marginalized communities. You know, Prop 8 in California is white women's march and black women organizers. You know, the white women from that march... They had some black organizers working with them, and it was a successful march. You know, I was, you know, I had to, you know, I had to give it up. That was a very successful march. But yet, at the end, they still managed to blame black and brown women for some of the dissent 
you know, and so, again, you know, everybody wants to point at President Bannon and say he doesn't take responsibility for his actions and he blames everyone else. You do the same thing. We all do. But when you're out here and you're trying to sell allyship, diversity, and inclusion, but once that talk is over, once you're on a bus or the train or the plane back home, you don't give a damn anymore. It was for that moment, and I'm supposed to believe you. So, all right, y'all, I'm back. This is Kim of Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. We are going to be starting on our series, talking about, you know, white Christianity, black Christianity, its role, its purpose in the communities, what it stands for, and and, and specifically, you know, I want to point out what happened with the election of President Bannon and white Christians in America, particularly white evangelicals, and how you know they they always tell you that you want that they want you to see the God in them, that God is first and Jesus is the center of their lives, right? Till it's time to vote, then their whiteness becomes the center of their lives. However, I don't understand why people were shocked and surprised at, you know, the number of white women who voted for Donald Trump and voted against their own interests, as well as the number of Christians that voted for Donald Trump. This is nothing new. The white church, white Christianity, as is known in America, especially in the Bible Belt, has always been in white supremacy and racism. So we'll talk about that. We'll get to it. We're going to have a lot of fun. I will add these articles. i got to go and get a couple of more and add it to it. But if you all check in tomorrow, I will have added them to this. I'm going to try to do it now. But, you know, I'm hungry. So anyway, all right, guys. It was nice being back. It was nice, you know, being able to talk. It's a lot of shit that we got to do. It's a lot of stuff we got to talk about. And I'm excited about it. And onward and forward, right? All right, everybody. Have a good Sunday, a good rest of the day, okay? Bye-bye.